starting in Matthew chapter 12, and I'm going to read to you uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 20 through 21. I've put in everything, I think, or Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. I think I've put 20 in everything, Uh, so if it says 1 through 20 on your outline or anything else there, it's actually going to be 1 through 21. Let me read to you. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? Now he entered the house of, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests." Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Hopefully, you were here last week as we looked at the background to understanding this text, uh, as we looked at the Sabbath and and maybe a proper understanding of the Sabbath from the Old Testament. If if you didn't, you might I might encourage you to go back and uh, and listen to that because I might say some things that seem a little odd if you didn't. But but I think a right understanding of of the Sabbath clears those up to this point in Jesus' ministry. Opposition has grown pretty slowly. Uh, there, there has been some opposition, there has been some rebellion against him and, and his teaching, but it hasn't come very strong. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, uh, we see that this opposition is going to grow exponentially from here. And the primary uh, cause of that is going to be the, the difference between Jesus' understanding of the Sabbath and the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath. And here in Matthew chapter 12, uh, these first 20 verses, I think what Matthew is showing us is this great contrast between Jesus' ministry and the Pharisees' ministry. If we're not paying attention, if we put too much weight to division of chapter and verse, which as most of us probably know were added later, sometimes we can miss the continuity of things. Because in the previous verse that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, We see this amazing passage about the heart of Jesus. 
That, that our Messiah, our Lord, who took on flesh and became a man, came to give rest. He's gentle. He's lowly. Philippians tells us he's humble. I can understand that these things are true about Jesus. What I can't grasp is why they're true. Why would, why would the creator of heaven and earth the perfect creator of heaven and earth, be humble. He can't be prideful. You ever thought about that before? When we're prideful, it's because we think of ourselves higher than we are. He can't do that. There is nothing he can imagine greater than himself. There is no power or importance he could think he has that he doesn't. He can't be prideful so, so in thinking ultimately and gloriously and wonderfully about himself, he's just thinking rightly about himself. And he's still humble. I don't understand why this is true, but we're told that it's true. And so here's Jesus, the humble, gentle, lowly creator and holy God who has offered us rest. Enter Matthew chapter 12. And as Matthew writes to a Jewish audience, maybe nothing would stir up more feelings of unrest and burden than Sabbath. This thing that was designed to be restful, that was designed to be for people, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath, had become completely the opposite of that. The, the Pharisees had turned it into, really the rabbis for some time had turned it into anything but rest. And as Matthew mentions the Sabbath, his audience would have heard burden. The Pharisees, uh, this is often what Jesus talks about when he says they, they, they tie up loads too heavy to bear. I think maybe a little bit of uh, compassion for their efforts is in order. I think we're quick to denigrate them. But it wasn't without reason. Uh, Jeremiah 17.27. It wasn't right, but it's not entirely ununderstandable. Jeremiah 17.27 says, But if you do not listen to me, to keep the Sabbath day holy, and to not bear a burden, and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and I shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and shall, uh, uh, the palaces of Jerusalem, and shall not be quenched. See, the reality is, uh, you know how long the captivity is when, when, of course, we know the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity in Assyria, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity in Babylon. How long did the Sabbath last, or the, how long did the captivity last? As many years as it took to make up for all the Sabbath years that they had skipped. See, the land was to be worked for six years and then given a Sabbath rest. God told the nation of Israel he was going to send them into captivity and give the land a break. He was going to catch up on their Sabbaths. And so here this nation had been hauled off into captivity, and maybe to some degree, captivity has been represented by Greek and now Roman rule. They're, they're in control of the Romans. They haven't been hauled out of their land, but the Jews would have probably seen this as captivity. And in their mind, if we keep the Sabbaths properly, if we keep the Sabbath week properly, if we keep the Sabbath year properly, then maybe we won't have to go in captivity again. 
Maybe we'll be able to be a free people again. Free to worship our God in our way and to be, uh, to be governed in our way. It wasn't entirely without warrant, but the reality is, and I think what they entirely missed, is that their failure to keep the Sabbaths was not the exclusive reason for which they were taken into captivity. God didn't discipline them only because they didn't keep the Sabbaths. Their, Sabbath, their failure to keep the Sabbaths was representative of their idolatry and disobedience for God on a much larger level. It was just one evidence. One evidence of neglect. Uh, This thing of neglect. Neglecting the command of God and the worship of God and the the rest of God was, was evidence of all of their other sin. And so the Pharisees had made this maddening, burdensome list of rules about Sabbath keeping. Are you interested in some of them? Because some of them are pretty interesting and even kind of funny. Let me just give you three examples. The law said that no one could travel on the Sabbath, Exodus 16, 29. So, so Sabbath or travel at length, and of course, you know, it was difficult to travel back then, either maybe on a camel or a donkey or more likely by foot. But how far could one not go on the Sabbath? Well, the rabbis had decided that a Sabbath day's journey, and that might be a term you have read in the Gospels, we we hear it uh, throughout the Gospels, that a Sabbath day's journey was about a thousand yards. But if you tied a rope across the end of a street, that became a dwelling. So now you could walk to the end of the street and your thousand yards would start at the rope. Or, if you placed food somewhere on Friday evening that was within a thousand yards, and you walked to that place on the Sabbath, and you sat where the food was hidden, and you ate a meal, you've now established a dwelling, and you can go another thousand yards. Because that now becomes your dwelling place. This, the, the, the law... Uh, Jeremiah 17, 21 through 27, said you couldn't carry a load on a Sabbath. You, you couldn't pick up a burden and carry it. So, what was a load? A garment? Your cloak? Well, carried? The answer is yes. Worn? The answer is no. So, if you wanted to move your cloak from one room in the house to another, you had to put it on and then walk from room to room because carrying it was work. As we've seen, the law said you couldn't do work on the Sabbath. And there's multiple places we could quote that. But what was work? What about spitting? Is spitting work? Well, that would depend. If you spat in the dirt and your spittle created a little lump in the dirt, that was plowing. And that was unallowable. But if you spat on a rock and no dirt was moved, that was acceptable. These are just three examples. But all in all, rabbinic writing outside of Scripture had created 39 categories of forbidden work. 
Reaping was one of those categories. Which brings us to our first conflict. Matthew gives us two conflicts over the Sabbath, or two incidences over the Sabbath, before uh, quoting Isaiah to tell us something wonderful about Jesus, which will be our main attention today. But we've got to understand these. Verse 1 creates a very simple scenario. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. This was not unlawful. The law required that when you harvested a field, you left the edges, and that people walking through your field could take grain. There's nothing unacceptable uh, about this uh, picking of somebody else's grain, other than it's on the Sabbath, and, well, you're not allowed to reap on the Sabbath. In fact, I think any attentive New Testament reader or, or Jewish reader would have probably understood four, four broken Sabbath rules here. Number one, picking heads of grain would be considered reaping, and that was not to be done. Secondly, you would take those, that grain that you had picked in your hands, and we live in wheat country, many of us have probably done that, and to separate the wheat from the chaff, you would rub your hands together. And the casings of, of chaff would come off of the, the kernels of wheat. That would be threshing. If you blew in your hand to, to blow all that chaff away, that's winnowing. And all three combined would have been preparing a meal. So this was a, a quite defiant of the Sabbath on that day. And, and some Pharisees, seeing it, verse 2, protest. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, to be very clear, they were breaking rabbinic rules, not God's law. And, and so when Jesus later says it was not unlawful, he is not wrong. Jesus' response, though, is really interesting. He does not show how breaking their interpretation of the law was not breaking the law itself. He doesn't say, no, 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 that's your rules. Let's look at Scripture and see what's true. He also doesn't argue about the fact that they weren't actually working. He doesn't argue with their understanding of that either. What he does is he offers three Old Testament scenarios, three Old Testament proofs. I think maybe that was supposed to be two, but my notes say three. We'll see if it works out to three or two. How's that sound? Um, but we get a couple scenarios. First, in verses 3 and 4, we have David as recorded in 1 Samuel 21. Now, in 1 Samuel 21, Saul, the king in Israel, has been rejected by God for his disobedience and faithlessness and many things. Uh, but, but he's been rejected by God. And God uh, has uh, anointed David to be the next king. Now David, he goes a long way throughout his life never to assault Saul. The same is not true of Saul towards David. Saul is out to kill David. And, and that's the context here of uh, in verse uh, verses 3 and 4. David has fled to Nob with his soldiers, and while they're in Nob, they have nothing to eat. Uh, verse 3. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the, God, the house of God and ate the bread of the presence. This would have been 12 loaves set on the altar uh, before in, in the holy place representing the 12 tribes of Israel, which Jesus correctly says it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for any of those who were with him, but only for the priests. They weren't allowed to eat that. And yet David, in his fleeing, was hungry and he ate. 
Scenario two, or have you not read the law? Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? In other words, the, the priests still have to work on the Sabbath. And they're, they're guiltless in that. This goes back to what we looked at last week about the Sabbath not being a moral command. Which is why Jesus is able to tell us here in a moment, this is probably argument number three, that He's Lord of the Sabbath. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus' point in referencing David and his men eating the showbread is that God's laws were given for the good of people and not their harm. Let me ask you, when your desires come in conflict with God's Word, what are you prone to think about the character of God in that moment? Do, do you understand God to be one who, who either commands or prohibits out of some desire to suppress what would ultimately be enjoyable for you? Or, or do you see Him as a good and benevolent Father whose commands and prohibitions are for your good? The example of David shows us that God's commands are for our good, not for people's harm. The second, as Jesus points to the temple service, I think what he's saying here in in the example of the priests is that temple service took precedence over Sabbath obedience. That is, worship took precedence over obedience to this particular command. Not that people were just allowed to say, oh, well, I'm worshiping so I can disobey. It was not disobedience for the priests to serve because they were commanded to serve. But God, in His infinite wisdom, could command the priests to serve in the temple without it being sinful because he was, that, that worship took precedence over Sabbath-keeping for the priests and for the priests only. And Jesus is telling us here that He takes precedence over the temple service. That, that worship of Him and obedience to Him takes precedence over the temple service. And then thirdly, uh, in verses 7-8, through eight, Jesus quotes Hosea 6-6 six, six here by saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There are some things that simply take precedence over others. Now again, this is not a a way to work our way around God's laws, but it is simply to say that sometimes the form of obedience without a heart of obedience is meaningless. To to maybe make a a connection that we could understand, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 tells us if we can do all the spiritual gifts that he's just mentioned in, in chapter 12, of 1 Corinthians, but have not love, we're just noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Let me just tell you, where's Caleb? Is Caleb in here? You did a great job this morning. But if we put Bradley in there with a stick and a cymbal, man, we, or me, you'd think a monkey was back there banging on a cymbal, right? Like, it's just, it's just annoying. It just grates on you. It's just noise purposeless noise. 
And Paul is saying if you got all the gifts, but no love, you're just noise. They were abusing the gifts for the wrong thing. Well, I think what, what, uh, what Jesus is pointing us to here is that some things take preference over others. Mercy over sacrifice. He's not saying sacrifice didn't matter. He is saying sacrifice without mercy is pointless. In other words, faith mattered more than Sabbath keeping. They were hungry. Jesus didn't, wasn't going to look at his disciples and say, well, it's the Sabbath, you, you can't eat. Then we get incident number two. Uh, Luke 6 teaches us that these two incidents happened on different Sabbaths. Excuse me, Matthew combines these two Sabbaths, as he often does, and these two incidents for teaching value. But if we notice in verses 9 and 10 and 13, uh, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Not arbitrarily. They've set this as a trap. Follow along with me starting in verse 9. He went on from there and entered the syn- their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. What Matthew does is he gives us a a fourth lesson here, and that lesson is that it's always right to do good. It's always right to do good. They asked him to accuse him. Verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? The reality is that the... um, the, the law, their law, their rabbinic law, not, not biblical law, allowed for you to rescue a sheep that had fallen into a pit. But you couldn't help uh, medically on the Sabbath because that was work. So people were, be, were to be neglected if they needed help, but your sheep could be rescued. Jesus points out that this man is far more valuable than the sheep. And I think one thing that's worth noting is that Jesus' healing here, the fact that he's, they set the trap, he makes the point that the man is more important than the sheep. And so, verse uh, 12, of how much more value is the man than the sheep? Infinitely. The man is created in the image of God and the sheep is not. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and the man stretched out his hand, and it was restored, healthy like the other. Here we see by this miracle that Jesus' interpretation of the Sabbath is validated. He's vindicated in his rightfulness here. Notice the Pharisees' reaction. They were silence. The man stretched out his hand, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees, well, they went out. And they conspired against him. They were silenced. They were not convinced. So they went out and they tried to figure out how to get rid of him. See, the reality is, listen very carefully, it's dangerous to adhere to a set of religious rules while your heart is far from God. It's dangerous to adhere to a set of religious rules when your heart is far from God. What seemed most upsetting to them is not that Jesus was disobeying God's law. We know he wasn't. But that he was disobeying theirs. 
Which means not only do we have to be careful not to obey a set of rules while our hearts are far from God, but we have to be careful not to impose rules upon people that God has not imposed. See, when it comes to faith, when it comes to salvation, post-salvation, there's definitely things to obey. There are things that God commands us to do and not do. They're all responses to faith. When it comes to being saved, when it comes to being forgiven of our sin, there is no obedience required except the obedience of faith. And Galatians tells us that to add obedience to faith for salvation is to have nothing. Let me give you Galatians math. We've talked some about kingdom math. I'm going to give you Galatians math, okay? Here's Paul's math in Galatians. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That's Paul's Galatians math. If you you accept obedience for salvation, then you have nothing. He says you've fallen from grace. He calls the Galatians bewitched. The only obedience that is required for salvation is to trust that Jesus has done what you and I cannot. Live perfectly and then die in our place so that when we believe, His death counts as our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His life as our life. But there's no room in the Gospel for self-reliance. Not the slightest bit. Mark 3.6 records something else very interesting. Matthew doesn't record it. But after this instance of healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, Jesus, uh, or these Pharisees, they leave the um, they they leave the the synagogue and they go and conspire with the Herodians. The Pharisees were religious leaders, experts in the law, experts in not only the scriptures but all the rabbinic writings attached to the scriptures. The Herodians could not have been more opposite than that. Uh, they were politicians. They were political leaders. And, and the, the, the religious leaders and the political leaders, they found common ground in conspiring against Jesus. This reminds me, Ephesians actually reminds us all, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Second Corinthians calls him the God of this world. I may not be popular for saying this, but here it is anyways. A survey of history will show that when politics and the church team up, nothing good comes from it. Nothing. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying Christians can have no political influence. I'm saying when the church and politics find itself on the same side, nothing good comes of it. But there, I think, is some far more better lessons for us than this here. It's good to do good. 
Faith and love are kingdom priorities in serving God. Of course, rightfully applied. But I think what Matthew gives us next is ultimately the point. He wants us to see something true and wonderful about Jesus. And so he quotes for us Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, which is the first of Isaiah's servant songs. Uh, Those servant songs are found in 42, 49, 50, 51, and 52 of Isaiah. They are all about Jesus. They're all predictions of who he would be. And and this is the very first one. And so I want to look at four predictions about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. And this is going to go really fast, so don't worry. Number one, the Messiah will bring justice to the earth. Number one, the Messiah will bring justice to the earth. This is verse 18, where Matthew quotes Isaiah saying, Behold, my servant. Now this word for servant is an interesting one. It's not the typical word for servant. Um, it often gets translated, and we, we know that words have a lot of flexibility right? Just, uh, just look on social media and see how, uh, how well people do with the various forms of the word to. T-O, T-W-O, T-O-O. We seem not to know, but one word that sounds the same can have many meanings. Words, words are, are, are very flexible, uh, and this is one of those words. It often does not get translated servant, but son. It's a very affectionate term. My servant, whom I have chosen. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. God was pleased with the Son. He says, I will put my Spirit upon Him. We saw that in Matthew at the baptism of John. And He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The Hebrew word here is mishpat. And, and it does not mean justice just in terms of we might think like a gavel dropping and the verdict is right. No, this, this justice, this idea of mishpat in Hebrew, this idea of justice, it affected how one interacted with, uh, with the world around them. You, you, if you were able to, uh, well, we, we could just take the, the story of the Good Samaritan, Right? The, the, the two guys who passed by first did not act with justice, with mishpat. But the Samaritan, whose, whose justice leads him to do what is right towards the man beaten on the side of the road. That, that kind of concern for others, that empathetic and sympathetic concern for the well-being of those around us, that's the concern. Justice is God's concern for the welfare of people, not just fairness nor rightness in in judgments as in a court sense. And so Jesus was going to be one who brought justice, who brought concern, who brought healing, who brought care for all peoples, not just Israel. Number two, the Messiah will not be brash, but quiet and humble. Quiet and humble. We see this one strongly played out in verse 15, which we haven't given much attention to. But look with me at verse 15. Let's look first at verse 19. It says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, aware of their leaving and conspiring and uh, all of these things, he withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all. There's the justice part. He healed them, that's the fulfillment of verse 18, and ordered them not to make him 
known. That's verse 19. He he didn't come to create a ruckus. He didn't come to create a stir. I, I, uh, I think sometimes if we put all these things together, we just we get it wrong. A lady I worked with at a church who lives somewhere far away now posted a meme on Facebook I saw uh, this week. And it was a story about a Muslim man getting into a taxi cab in New York City and asking the taxi driver to turn off the radio because he was not allowed to listen to the radio because there were not radios in the day of the prophet. The story goes on to explain how the taxi driver pulled over, stopped the car, opened the door, ordered the man to get out, and to ride a camel because there were no taxis or AK-47s or anything like that in his day. She was posting inflammatory things to create a political ruckus. We've never seen anybody do that with Twitter before, or X, or whatever we want to call it. He didn't come to incite riots. He didn't come to create a revolution. He didn't come to team up with the politicians. He didn't come to get people to vote a certain way. 1 Timothy calls for all men to lift up holy hands without quarreling, praying for all who are in positions of authority so that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. You know what I think Paul means by quiet and peaceable? I think he means evangelistic. I think sometimes our political, opinionated, even if right, huff and puff, it just destroys our witness. What if we cared more about living peaceable lives towards our neighbors than we cared about trying to be right on Facebook to people that we don't even know if they're going to read our stuff? I used to drive by this gym in Tucson, and there was a guy who drove a Lamborghini. Now, this gym was way back off the road in the mall parking lot, but he parked that Lambo out by the road so that people he would never see and didn't know could drive by and go, somebody drives that Lambo. It's kind of what we're doing with social media. We're parking our opinionated, offensive Lambos on the street so that we don't know who might just drive by and hopefully see what we've got to say. Jesus wasn't like that. And our prayers for our politicians, and you should pray for our politicians, and you should remember Romans 13 that reminds us that there has never been anybody in public office that God didn't want to be there. I don't understand his purposes. I don't understand his purposes with this guy, and I didn't understand his purposes with the last either. But no guy's ever been in office, or gal, who God didn't intend to be there. But our prayers for them are supposed to be that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. Why? Verse 20, because the Messiah will not crush the weak. 
A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory. Someone once told me, uh, not me directly, I heard this in a, a message about preaching one time, that we never run the risk of being too gentle. I struggle with that, but I think that's right. Jesus was gentle and lowly, and we never run the risk of being too gentle. Here he is, offering rest while the Pharisees are tying up burdens too heavy to carry. Even those rules that are given, those post-faith rules, the things God commands that we do and don't do, they're given for our rest. Not to be burdensome. They're given to set us free. And finally, we see that the Messiah will bring salvation to the whole world. Verse 21, And in His name the Gentiles will hope. This was always the promise. The promise to Abraham of a people who would become a nation was so that all people would have hope. Salvation is for all who would come to him, regardless of any socioeconomic status. There there is no person whose ethnicity, whose criminal record, whose financial status, whose country of citizenship, whose previous record of sin, or whose previous religion No one, nothing disqualifies somebody from coming to Jesus in faith. This hope is for the whole world. This passage isn't given to us to show us how to or not to relate to the Sabbath. It's given to us to show the gentle and lowly nature of Jesus in regards to something that the Pharisees had used which was supposed to be for people's good, the Sabbath, and and just wound everybody up with it. It became, they were so wound up with it that it became the primary issue. But here, our example is to, to be like Jesus. To be gentle. To be quiet. To be peaceable. For sure, obedience matters. But for those who don't know Jesus, there is no obedience required to become a believer. In fact, and I'm not going to go off on it today, but if I understand 1 Corinthians 1 right, I think what what we see there is that those who who we think seem most likely to believe in Jesus are exactly the ones he likes to call to himself. So that when they do believe, the only response is only God can do that. We have to count the cost. It's free to come to Jesus. But He still calls people, as the Lausanne Covenant says so well, He still calls people to count the cost, to take up their cross, to follow Him, and to identify themselves with His new community, the church. But all of that comes post-salvation, not pre. What an amazing Savior we serve, who brings justice, who was quiet and humble to the point of death, who doesn't crush the weak, but who brings salvation to the whole world. Lord, we proclaim to you just how great you are. You you truly are an amazing God and an amazing Savior. 
And so much of who you are and, and what you did, it, it, it's in contrast to what comes natural to us. But that's because you are a holy God and, and we are sinful people. Would you, would you shape us into your image? Would we proclaim messages of freedom and of release from bondage? And still call people to count the cost. But to do so in gentle and quiet and evangelical, peaceful ways. Lord, as we think of upcoming elections and as people begin to worry and fret about these things, would you help us to remember that you are in control, that you are sovereign, you do still reign. And whether we understand who's in office or not is irrelevant because you do. You're working all things according to your plan. But Lord, would, would our prayer not be so much that our, our person would, would be able to take office, but that your church would live quiet and peaceable and evangelistic lives for your glory and for the salvation of the lost. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.